So, good evening everyone and welcome to Singularity Podcast. My name is Socrates and I will be your host today. Today, we're speaking with James Harvey. James Harvey is most recently the author of a very interesting Singularity book called Singularia, Being at the Edge of Time. And according to his short bio, he's also a poet, a mystic, a seasoned light worker, and a learned observer of life. So, James, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. It's uh, morning time here in Australia. It is incredible. I'm actually located in Toronto, Canada, at the other end of the world, and we have almost 13 or 14 hour time difference. So it is incredible what we're able to do today with technology, isn't it? Yes, it's like a, <clears throat> what is real time anymore and you know, how do we know what the possibilities are? <clears throat> excuse me, I have to, excuse me, I have a very thick throat this morning. Um, yeah, I mean, Skype is wonderful and that we can do this is a miracle and it's a part of what we're going to be talking about, I guess. Yes, let me backtrack a little bit and start from the bigger picture. Would you mind sharing a little bit with us and our listeners today about your background, maybe what you do for a living, and how eventually you got exposed to the idea of the technological singularity? Okay. Um, well, as far as my background, um, I grew up in the Midwest of the United States on a rural property, a farm. Um, was the first person in my family to ever go to university. Had an education with um, <clears throat> a religious education in Catholic schools. And it was actually there that I first began to know about the concepts that are surround singularity in being introduced to the work of Tillyard de, de Chardin and his mystical concepts of the new sphere and that consciousness was going to be uh, increasing and <clears throat> expanding during the next hundred years. Um, I went off to university, um, studied classical music, was a orchestral brass player and university teacher. And in my university teaching days, I was in Boulder, Colorado, teaching at the University of Colorado. And there I was exposed to a lot of different ideas and people in that community, which is quite a remarkable place. And the whole idea of uh, the increase of information and information going exponential along with uh, computer processing, which was all being developed during this time. I mean, I'm talking about I graduated from high school in 1966 and went to university during the late 60s and uh, saw all that went on at that time and all the change that was happening that we were going through. And so the acceleration of change made a great deal of sense to me. Being exposed to other people, uh, such as, uh, uh, I'm trying to think now, uh, Vivanovsky and other people who were talking about the translation of culture over time and how that increased. But also then Terence McKenna and his ideas of novelty and the, how in the increase of information that novelty would be increasing as well and that the expected rise of unusual things and unusual discoveries is something that should be looked for. Then, of course, later on, uh, in more recent years, uh, I've been watching and observing the 
ideas and thoughts have been coming out of the computer industry people and Ray Kurzweil and others are talking about the singularity. And all this has been boiling and roiling around in my consciousness and mind and my different adventures that I've had in my lifetime until it became obvious to me that I really need to put my stake in the ground and say, well, I think singularity is a whole lot more than just technology. That's very interesting, and that is one of the reasons I believe that today our listeners would be treated to a very unique point of view on the singularity here. So let me jump right in and ask you, in what sense and how do you perceive yourself to be different in terms of defining, perceiving, and uh, predicting the technological singularity from what we may call to be the sort of mainstream in transhumanism or in the singularity in general. So in other words, how do you define the singularity in your own terms? And how are you different from, say, people like Ray Kurzweil, who are most notable in popularizing that as an issue? And what do you think their faults or what uh, their uh, gaps uh, in terms of uh, theory and or practice are? And also maybe you can speak a little bit about their predictions about the future and your interpretation thereof. Okay, that's a big one. I'll give, a, give that a good try. Um, I'm coming personally from a humanistic and classical point of view of um, appreciation of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm an artist. I'm a musician. I have been influenced in my life's journey also a great deal by indigenous cultures. First, Native American. And later, when I came to Australia, and surprisingly to me, uh, Aboriginal culture. I spent some years and a great deal of time and energy uh, in the Northern Territory of Australia, where I had been invited to come uh, as a person who was interested in the didgeridoo. Uh, there I encountered different ways of knowing and seeing the world that were harmonious with my own experience growing up as a, a boy on the farm and as a musician who was in tune and sensitive to the workings of music and the musicians around him to perform. And also a person who has had a lifelong experience, uh, ongoing experience of what we would call mystical experiences and had used my intelligence and my savvy uh, to explore that throughout my life to try and not take on any particular point of view, but in, to inform myself as to what is the real magic <clears throat> and mystery of this place that's infested with life that we call Earth. So I'm a very curious person. I'm also a very mm, uh, empathic individual. Um, I don't think it was until I was maybe 40 years old that I got the idea that not everyone, not everything I felt was my own feelings, that I was also picking up on a lot of other people. And so I am not a materialist. I am not a fundamental materialist at all. While I respect science and believe it is a marvelous tool, I do not worship it. Uh, I am a person who helps other people. I have spent a great deal of my time in the last 20 years as a mentor to others and also as a guide. Uh, I've taken many people into the outback 
at their request and brought them back and helped them see that the world is not only more mysterious than we can suppose, it's more mysterious than anything we could ever imagine. So when I hear of the technological singularity, or the singularity as they like to call it, uh, I mostly find it amusing in that it reinforces um, my own thoughts and experiences that the singularity is actually a event that is occurring in consciousness. And it's not just about technology, it's also about our social consciousness, our, our artistic consciousness. It's uh, something that has been coming since people painted on the walls of the caves in Neolithic times. Um, and that all of our experiences and history and innovations are all now rushing and coming together in an interconnective way that we're participating in right this moment in that we're speaking halfway across the world to each other and exchanging ideas in real time that what we imagine is what we make so so at one time for thousands of years people imagined that they wanted to fly and then eventually we have flown not in the ways that maybe we would have thought we would in imitating birds but then again we are imitating birds but we're doing so with- am I correct in assuming that your belief is that our primary force or our primary motivator would be our spirit rather than our science? Spirit motivated science. Science was a bit of a reaction to some versions of the story of spirit. But whatever it is that enlivens us, and makes us that thing that is uniquely human, human, which is a self-conscious and remembering life form, whatever that is. And I don't particularly want to define it because I think that's a fool's errand. However, we all experience it and we all are highly aware of our experience in the world, moment by moment, but also that we're going to die, that we're aware of that. And that that's actually one of the gifts of consciousness in that, in a shamanic sense, uh, we are always to be aware that death sits at our shoulder and therefore to do our very best in every moment to be here and to really appreciate the miracle that we're participating in. So I would say, yes, my point of view is certainly mystical uh, and metaphysical. But without going into any particular beliefs or dogma as to what you should believe about that, other than to be aware of this, that we are all coming awake in a very quick and rapid fashion, and it is so tremendous that most of us won't even know that it happened when it's taken place, if that makes sense. Okay, but let me see. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. And... uh... Uh, I want to ask you what you think about the usual response from uh, people like Ray Kurzweil or others who would say that your um, sort of take on the singularity um, is very much connected with the... Hi, James. I'm sorry. I lost you there. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, You were just trying to ask me a question about... uh what Kurzweil and others would say about my point of view. Yeah, let me let me restate it again and then I'll, I'll kind of uh, 
put those two sound pieces together. Sure. Anyway, so James, traditionally, people like Ray Kurzweil respond to such criticism by saying that most of that kind of point of view or perception of the singularity is a result of our own attitude towards death and towards immortality and towards the, the claim, the, the fact or the claim, moreover, that we're all finite, we're all mortal, and that eventually we're all going to die. And therefore, based on that presumption, we're able to sort of put forward or build up such an ethics. But then what they would retort is that in a situation when we actually do not have to die, when we actually are able to arguably defeat aging and extend life expectancy forever, then that whole philosophy at the very least starts shaking and may even crumble. So, for example, one of their usual quotes is to support that argument is that, you know, we have managed to quadruple life expectancy over the last 2000 years. Um, during the age of the pyramids, life expectancy at birth was in the low 20s. I think it was something like 22 or 24. When social security was introduced in the United States at the beginning of the 20th century, life expectancy was about 48. Today, life expectancy is in the late 70s or early 80s. And I was actually recently reading an article on the BBC saying that most babies born today in first world nations such as Britain are most likely going to live, to live over 95 years of age. Therefore, the argument goes, we have been able to extend life, quadruple it over the last 2000 years, but we also have an accelerating ability to do so. And eventually, as Aubrey de Grey claims, we would reach what he calls uh, uh, an escape velocity, which would allow us to defeat aging and basically be able to sustain our life indefinitely. So if we are able, first of all, do you think that that argument holds any water and it makes any sense to you? In other words, do you believe that we will eventually be able to defeat aging? Uh, and if yes, then would that change your argument and your feeling and your perception about of the singularity? Right. Well, those are some of the very big questions that are in front of us in exploring this topic. And as you're aware, the, the very first article that I wrote to you was that I don't think it's a yes or no answer. It's a yes and no answer. Um, that trying to make it a false dichotomy of one thing or the other doesn't make us smarter in thinking about these things. Now, first of all, it isn't about an awareness of death that propels my philosophy. Actually, quite the contrary. It's my own experience of transcendence. Transcendence in the act of making music in the first instances, in the first two-thirds of my life, of those moments of gestalt and symbiosis that occur between a composer who died hundreds of years before the musicians and their instruments and the audience in a particular space, they come together 
that take all of us out of time and space and into completely new realms of imagination that we don't even have language for, and therefore we have music. And so my speculations and my appreciation for what I would call our singular experience of us all being a singularia, a center of consciousness that is as vast and complicated as the uh, galaxy that we exist in, in the stars that swirl around the Milky Way, that our neural connections are as vast and as complicated as that, that each one of us as a self-conscious individual uh, has the capacity for transcendence and epiphany. And this is not just my own experience. This is an experience that I've shared with others, I've observed with others, I've read from others, and that I look forward to finding more of as I explore my life and passage here on this earth. So death so, is just part of the, of the equation. It is not the motivator for me. So in that sense, then, let me try and see if I can come at it from another angle by saying, is it, do you believe that in that sense, technology facilitates and enhances our ability to transcend or hinders it? technology absolutely enhances it and also destroys it. Technology is first used in military equipment and music historically throughout our known cultural time. That's where you first see technology come into being. And with digital technology, which is the basis of the singularity, the technological singularity and the powers of processing uh, with computers, uh, the, we first saw it in the military and in music. The first things to be made were for music synthesizers, and Ray was one of the per, was one of the pioneers in that. Yes, he he made the first, some of the first wonderful synthesizers that propelled music into a completely new dimension of plasticity. Now I'm an analog musician. I made music with my breath, with blowing it through horns and with my ears and with my body. Yet at a certain point, I had to start looking to digital technology and going, what is going on here? And participating in that. And I spent the last 10 years of my life converting from an analog musician into a digital artist and technologist. Uh, first in music, but then in film, and now in exploring immersive technologies, which I believe are actually a response to the idea that we have to download ourselves into machines that on the contrary, we can create even more fabulous symbiosis of machinery and equipment and media to allow us to explore and have adventures in worlds that are only limited by our imagination. That the vision of the holodeck that we have with Star Trek is like the vision of flying that we had 2,000 years ago. Eventually, we're going to get there. Personally, I think we're going to get there a lot faster than we ever thought we would. And then in the next 10 to 20 years, we'll have the capacity with technology to explore our minds, ourselves, our being through the simulations and simulacrums of a holodeck type of experience. And this will not be only for our entertainment, but for our healing and our education. We'll be able to train people to do very precise and dangerous things through these simulations. We'll also be able to heal trauma. Now, while life expectancy has increased, just like 
many other things have increased. Um, that is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But it's been for the very, very few. There are still people on this planet who are living in Paleolithic times in some respects. And if left to their own devices, they'd probably be happy doing that. As Kim Wilber points out in his integral philosophy, all the previous epochs exist at the same time now. We are including and transcending all the time, but it's a very pointy edge at the top. And the idea that we might download ourselves into machines and live in some sort of hive consciousness that is the matrix, which is basically what Ray's talking about, though they don't like that pointed out to them, um, is to me absurd, unnecessary, and very, very dangerous because who's going to control it? Uh, so in your opinion, it seems that, and we agree on that entirely, that technology um, holds both huge promises, maybe the most unparalleled promises that humanity has ever faced, but also some existential perils and dangers. Mm, of course. So yeah. would you uh, maybe list the top promises and the top dangers that you foresee in the next couple of decades maybe and how in your opinion we should be dealing with that to avoid the dangers and um, embrace the promises well technology is a tool it is not an objective reality in and of itself just like any of our tools the promise or peril comes with ourselves it's about our own willingness to um, share really and to realize our position in the cosmos which is this self-aware creature now a big turning point in my life and I think it is uh, the crux perhaps of the issue which is that it's not about technology it's about ourselves was that 20 odd years ago when I was lured into Aboriginal Arnhem Land and met up with the world's oldest indigenous continuous spiritual culture. It was very simple. There was no elaborate teaching. It was all about experience and the experience was that everything's related. It's all about relationship and that our position in the web of life was to be the ones who saw and appreciated the beauty, the power, and the danger of it, and fed that back into the web of life as our dances and songs and stories and paintings and rememberings that we passed on of the doings of our predecessors and our dreams for our children. And so within the technological singularity or the social singularity of our trying to work our way through all of the uh, details of having a world economy that also celebrates its diversity, it is about ourselves and consciousness that really needs to be addressed. And these are the very things that have been in the process of this rush uh, looked over for the time being. 
And so, as McKenna talks about, I think we need a bit of an archaic revival. We need to bring back some of our own feeling and knowings at an intuitive and gut level and harmonize those with our objective scientific uh, points of view and come to a middle way, perhaps something closer to what was expressed in um, the great book, the, the, the Magister Ludi, or the Glass Bead Game of Hermann Hesse. Did you ever read that book, Nicola? Do you know no, it? I'm unfamiliar with it. Uh, many people are, but it's one of the great literary works of the 20th century in which he envisions a future society that is based about connectivity and intelligence increase and where the greatest games is not war, but in the revelation and exposition of the connection between art and music and literature and history and all the rest of it, biology and technology and science, in a kind of a grand hyperdimensional chess game that had uh, great masters to it, and that was their activity. Now, of course, that's fanciful, and it's even whimsical. However, it is a vision, and it's our visions that have propelled humanity in its entire history, which we also know geologically is in the last minute of this planet's life. If our planet's life was 24 hours old, we only appeared in the last minute. Speaking of vision, though, let me just grab that thought and zoom in on it. Isn't it, at the end of the day, what it's all about? Isn't it a competition between different visions? Say, for example, your vision, my vision, Ray Kurzweil's vision, and everybody else's visions coming together in this sort of concoction of humanities differing and different visions, and then some kind of, a, of an end result over which we may or may not have complete control of. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you, and we have no control over it over than the control we have upon our own thoughts and their expression. I wouldn't see it so much as a competition, as a grand symphony that we're composing on the spot. That's a good word. Yeah. In, in trying to symbi symbiosis ourselves, to try and bring ourselves together without destroying ourselves. Where there's great promise, there's always great peril. And it's that great peril that's part of what pro that keeps us going. Otherwise, we get pretty slack. So in that sense, it's all quite perfect. And it's not about one side winning or the other. It's about all of us having the dialogue. And... Um, welcoming that dialogue rather than insist we're right and they're wrong. But what happens to those of us or with those of us who refuse to play in the symphony, who, re who refuse to sit in the orchestra, who want to be out there somewhere and sort of text what they per take what they perceive to be the next step in evolution, enhance themselves to a level which would be well above and beyond anything that we've ever experienced. What happens after those people or those individuals come to exist and how do we even begin to communicate with them? I mean, Kevin Warwick, um, who is most commonly referred to as the first cyborg or the most famous cyborg by yeah. others, he says that um, humans are on their way out 
and he doesn't want to be a human when uh, the sort of super smart, super intelligent cyborgs are around. He wants to be one of the others. He wants to be one of the cyborgs. And one of the examples that he often gives is the example between us and cows. For example, what he says is, if a cow comes to me today and says something like moo, I'm not going to say, well, that's very brilliant. That's very smart. Let's see how we can communicate. I'm going to say that's a cow speaking and it's speaking in a very stupid language. And I don't even want to deal with it or I don't believe that there's any merit, any intelligent merit to what it's saying anyway. So his argument is that eventually the risk we're running is that once those super enhanced, super smart cyborgs or entities come to be, anyone who refuses to go beyond biology would be basically immediately made obsolete. So in other words, our orchestra or our symphony at that moment may be kind of overwhelmed by, I don't know, an alternative rock of unparalleled galactic proportions <laughs> at that moment. So our sound, be it Mozart, may be simply drowned in the sort of hardcore bass bass guitar playing that's coming out of those new entities, which we would totally be unable to communicate with at their own level, at least. Well, look, I find that a rather impoverished way of looking at life. Um, those individuals that would like to choose that experiment, experiment uh, I salute them and say, go for it, brother. Do your very, very best. See if you can turn yourself into a cyborg. I'm, I'm going to watch and I'll be very interested to see how that all turns out. However, you know, life and reality uh, never really goes the way we think it's going to go. And that's a good thing because I, I've certainly found with myself uh, what's come up in my life is better than I than I would have imagined for myself. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. So we've been exploring these ideas as a culture in a great deal, uh, great many films, whether it was starting with Soylent Green back 30 years ago uh, to The Matrix, which is a, what sounds like the cyborg thing talks about is like there's going to be humans and there's going to be the machines and it'll be this great war or yeah. the Terminator, um, Blade Runner, um, mm -hmm. iRobot. I mean, we're meditating upon this all the time in our culture and thinking about these things. And some people, of course, are going to say yes and others are going to say no. And it isn't so much of great interest in the yeses in the noes, but it what actually happens. And you know, machines and technology, um, you know, in one sense, uh, there's a great line in the, in the new um, robot, uh, Robo Boy? Is it a Robot Boy movie? Astro Boy. Astro Boy. Have you seen that? Yes, it's a I kid, have. It's a kid's movie, but, you know, it's deep. And in there, there's a line that says, machines are just waiting, are just junk waiting to happen. In a sense, they are. They always break. And we always extend ourselves to the point where we actually go beyond what's good for us. And I think... But are we really that different from machines in that sense? I mean, we are just ash 
waiting to happen too, in a way. Ah, good point. I, I, I take your point. I agree with that. But are we just ash? Are we just our bodies? I would say no. My experience of the transpersonal and the metaphysical is not. Sorry, we're just another example of something that is much grander and alive and awake um, than just one single ego human. Uh, but that's my answer to it, isn't it? Uh, but that comes from experience. It's not just out of thinking about it or wishing it so. It's in reacting to what has been within my experience and with others. So that that mystical artistic heritage, I think, will always be there. Maybe the music of Mozart will disappear, but the concept of Mozart will not. And there will be other musical geniuses to replace him. Well, let me see if we can connect that to your most recent book, James. Um, it is called Singularia, Being at the Edge of Time, which I believe is a very catchy title. At least it works very well for me. Mm -hmm. So maybe now is the time to let our listeners know how your book sort of fits in within the big picture as part of, of that symphony that we were talking about. Yes, well, <clears throat> Singularia came about after a great deal of reflection. Reflection upon what could be possibly the future for my own children and their children. And going deeply into the angst of where we may be taking ourselves as we overpopulate the planet and desecrate it with our poisoning of it and misuse of it and the heating of it and the arguments and politics that ensue. And at a certain point, I felt that for, for myself and for my own family, I needed to at least sit down and personally write uh, where I saw all this, not as a hopeless thing, but as a adventure in consciousness that was artistic and poetic. And so I gave myself three days to write an essay. That three days turned into 35,000 words in six weeks. <laughs> um, having accomplished that and having experienced great contentment and peace while doing it, an excitement as I approached the writing each day and it poured forth from my being, I shared it with a few colleagues privately and said, well, what do you make of this? And to a person, they replied, oh my, <laughs> people need to know about this. You're saying things that I'm feeling, but I haven't had words to put to to these feelings or time to even to contemplate it. And, and you've done this. You should really let people know about this. And so I then followed through with the process of further refinement and further sharing and getting comments back. I mean, the comments you introduced our inter interview with that I was a seasoned light worker, blah, blah, blah. Those aren't things I'm saying about myself. <laughs> Those are comments I'm getting back from people who I didn't know before who had the manuscript passed on to them. So um, 
I looked at the situation as far as the timing and how things were going and decided that the quickest way to get the book out uh, was to self-publish it and took the bull by the horns and did all of that and created a website and now I find myself in the business of feeding what I call the cookie monster of the internet with information so that people might know that there is this other point of view that is much more harmonious with a great deal of cultural experience that we have gone, been going through in my lifetime since the 60s, since the Cultural Revolution, um, that uh, has not taken the aggressive approach of the counterstance of materialism and the fundamentals of the market economy and such. And I really believe it's our time to come back into the conversation now, and Singularia is my hopefully amusing and uh, insightful um, storytelling around the fire to not tell people what to think, but to help them have their own thoughts about this and come to their own conclusions about these mighty and uh, important issues that are before us, and not just ourselves, but for the future of humanity. What choices are we going to make now? And are we going to see it simply as technology and materialist point of view, or are we going to allow our heart to enter into the equation and to speak from our heart and not just from our head? And so that's how Singularia came about, and um, people find it a very entertaining book. They find that it's something that makes them stop and think along the way, and it amuses them a great deal. Um, and I'm so in a way... That. In a way, the book is a call to our roots, as opposed to uh, the call to jump forward, which uh, Ray Kurzweil and others are pushing for. You're saying, in a way, wait a second, you know, and you're wanting us to look to the roots in order to find the future. Yes. In a simple word, yes, uh, that we should take it all with us. Many years ago, when I lived in Boulder, there was a Tibetan teacher there, Choyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who had a great many people that listened to what he had to say. Um, he was quite of a rascal and a wonderful spiritual teacher. I was never one of his students, but I did attend lectures and listen to him. And he said a very interesting thing one evening. He said, you all want to be enlightened. And he said, I'll tell you, enlightenment, is having everything you always wanted plus everything you always wanted. And I think that's my attitude about how we should go forward. We should really have it all, and then we should have it all again. That the singularity is everything we ever wanted and feared plus everything we ever wanted and feared. And that it's our human nature to look these things in the eye and come to a uh, harmony with it. This is my belief about humanity, regardless of the behavior of some few that is pushed in front of us all the time. I think there's a great deal more good happening in the world every day than evil. We just don't get told about it very much. And if, I so can say one, if I could say one last thing, though, about the cows. Sure, sure of course. The cows, you know. <laughs> I grew up with cows. <laughs> Just a couple days ago, at the solstice, in the nighttime, we had cows 
out in the back paddock owned by the farmer across the road who were calling all night long. A herd of cattle, maybe 100, 150 of them, all mooing and mewling. And one could listen to that and go, oh, that's so irritating. But if you actually let it in and listen to it, there was a grand symphony going on with that cattle that night under the dark of the moon as we were passing through the solstice of the darkest night of the year here. And while I couldn't say that it meant anything, it gave a lot. It gave a moment in that evening that is something that no one can ever take away from me now. And yes, it might not have been some sort of wonderful theory about how we're all going to uh, do something or other, but it was a real statement by another consciousness. And cows have consciousness, just like dogs do and cats. And our chickens certainly have consciousness. It might be a pea brain, but they're no dummies. That listening to the cows, well, you know, that can be a really wonderful thing. And I'd recommend it to anybody who had the time to take it up. <laughs> so would you say in that sense that your book is kind of more of a of an experiential journey rather than a blueprint or a step-by-step -step action guide? Uh, no, I'm not telling people what to do. It's not a self-help book. It relates a lot of stories to how we've come to our empirical universe, our alchemical universe, our shamanic universe, what Aboriginal Dreamtime has to tell us about the core of the universe and the Milky Way. Um, it then goes into uh, the notions that we are in the sixth extinction that of this planet and it's caused by ourselves and that what we might do about all of that is begin to come together even stronger through our arts and festivals to get smarter together, to bring technology and uh, our analog arts of cooking and music making and ceremony all together in an experiment that's already going on in places like Glastonbury and Burning Man and other festivals that happen all around the world where technology and the most primitive of our fire dancing, hula hoop twirling uh, antics go on where people come out renewed, refreshed and ready to dream the dream. And so if I have an answer there, it's like, let's continue to do more, that wherever we're going to find our answer, it's going to be joyful, and it's going to be in fun, and not this fear-laden dystopia that is so smoky and hazy around the whole idea of the technological singularity. I, I think Ray and those guys need to have a much harder look at what they're talking about and try and get rid of some of that fear, because um, it's going to bring them down in the end, and probably not help them realize their dreams. So James, you've already mentioned that you self-published uh, the book. Uh, would you mind telling our listeners where and how they could actually get their hands on a digital or physical copy? Um, if you go to Singularia, S-I-N-G-U-L-A-R-I-A dot com dot A-U, you'll find our little website that gives you more information and some excerpts in the book and its table of contents and you can go there and uh, order an e-copy or a physical copy. Um, I'll tell you from our experience so far, 
most people want a real book. They don't want an electronic book. We sell far more uh, real books than we do electronic books. I also have an audio version if people want to listen to it. Uh, so we made it as easy as possible. And if you look, if you don't want to buy it, go on to Google Books and you can read at least half of it there. Um, <laughs> and if somebody can't afford it, send me an email through the website and I'll give it to you. Uh, this is about information and this is about love. Uh, as unpopular as that may sound and as whimsical as it may sound, I really think love is the answer. Uh, the Beatles had it right. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're in the information business and we're putting it out through Singularia. I would say probably in the next six months or so we'll have a, an actual publisher because um, we're working on that part. And once I've got that sorted, then it'll go into bookstores and Amazon and those kinds of places. But if you want to be on the in now, come on to my website. Write me an email. I'll always write you back. Uh, I'm interested in the dialogue and in uh, furthering humanity in the most positive and beautiful way we can and not just in scaring ourselves. That's absolutely fantastic, James. Maybe we can draw our interview to a close by a few words that you would like to finish with. Gosh, um, <clears throat> I'm at a bit of loss for words. Um, if there's one thing that our listeners would take from you today, what would you like it to be? What would you hope that you would make them think or make them feel or take from this 40-minute interview that we just did? Gosh, um, the world is a beautiful place. We are no mistake. We are actually here as the eyes and ears of something that's so grand and beyond our comprehension that we ought to really relax and chill out about that a little bit and start to enjoy it and each other a bit more. And that we have known how to behave for quite a while and that more and more um, we're getting there. Just as it's like our lives are extending, the amount of peace on the earth is extending. We just had a very novel thing happen here in Australia just yesterday. Talk about novelty and the increase of novelty and the swiftness of change. We changed governments in less than 24 hours. Yeah, I heard the first female prime minister of Australia. Congratulations. The first, the first, the first female premier of, uh, prime minister of Australia sworn in by also the first governor general of Australia who was a woman who was appointed by the outgoing Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, who was also the Prime Minister who said sorry to the Aboriginal stolen generations and started the process of a healing in this country that is over 200 years overdue. Now, we got our first female Prime Minister in not a coup d'etat and not a revolution, but in a very legal, quick, but transition of power that had a great deal of dignity. Everyone maintained their dignity in what would normally be a power struggle. But instead, so what does that say about our own internal singularia? I think it's saying that we are getting smarter and that there is a cutting edge on humanity that is much bigger than we, than we suspect that can move uh, with real choice and decisiveness and put their, forth their own opinion and that we don't have to shed blood doing it. 
And I guess if I were to say what were the final words, I, I would say that in the I Ching it says that the creative is strong and that the creative works for sublime success and that we further through perseverance. That the way of change is through transformation and that we receive our true nature and destiny by coming into accord in great harmony with that change. And so singularia is to say each one of us are individual centers of the universe perceiving another center of the universe and together we are all crossing an event horizon of stupendous import and that that's going to bring out the best and the worst of us and it is up to us to see that through and I recommend love, compassion, empathy, artistic response as a very valid balancing and leavening agent to the bread that we're all cooking together. No, 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 James. Well, I would like to thank all of our listeners tonight. I hope you guys all had fun. I know I personally enjoyed my conversation with James immensely, just like I enjoy his writings on Singularity weblog. This podcast would be posted on singularitysymposium.com and singularityweblog.com. So if you're interested, you can download it there. That would be all for tonight, and I hope that you would come all back to listen to our next Singularity podcast as soon as it becomes available. Thank you.